Welcome to the Nations Church Podcast. We hope this message blesses you. Who's ready for the word? There's a few of you. Hopefully more of you will enjoy it as we, uh, <coughs> as we progress. Anyhow, we're going to go, whether you're ready or not, we're going to go to the book of Luke. Everyone say Luke. We're heading to chapter 18 today and we're going to start reading from verse number one. And it says this, one day Jesus told his disciples, everyone say disciples. He told his disciples a story to show how they should always pray and never give up. Let's just pause there. Jesus is talking to his disciples I don't know if you're aware, but the mandate of this house is discipleship. Our mandate is lost, found, some of you know it, disciples, nations, reached. Lost, found, disciples made, nations reached. And whenever I get an opportunity, I like to remind people that it's not just disciples made out there. It's not just disciples made outside the four walls of this house. It's firstly and foremostly, it's disciples in the making in here. You understand? We are the disciples in the making. Amen. We want the culture of this house to not just be one of church attendants. How boring. <laughs> to, not want, to not just be one of a religious box to tick, but we're hungry for authentic discipleship. We're hungry to be followers, obedient followers of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and have Christ formed in us. One person, Christ formed in us that year on year, we get to look a little bit more like Jesus. Year on year, we get to have more and more of his likeness inside of us, the goal of our discipleship. So if we are disciples, if that's the life we've signed on for, then when we read a text like this one in Luke chapter 18, addressed to disciples, we should be vitally interested in what Jesus is about to say. You're tracking with me today. So let's pick it up again. Verse 1, one day Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray. And never give up. There was a, a judge in a certain city and he said, who, who neither feared God nor cared about people. A widow of that city came to him repeatedly saying, give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. The judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people. At least he was honest. But this woman is driving me crazy. <laughs> I'm going to see to it that she gets justice because she is wearing me out with her constant requests. Then the Lord, this is Jesus, he said to his disciples, would you learn a lesson from this unjust judge? Even he rendered a decision, a just decision in the end. So don't you think that God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? Incredible parable from Jesus there. We understand that he often spoke in parables. He often shared these fictitious stories in order to convey kingdom truths. And in this instance, this parable is designed to teach us about 
prayer. That was Jesus' intention. And we see that there's two characters in this parable. There's this widow and she has a need. This widow and she's crying out for justice. And the other character is this judge. And he's the one that has the authority to grant her the justice that she seeks. And the text tells us this judge is not a great guy. He's not kind, he's not godly, he's unloving, but nonetheless, he is the one that has the authority. And so she comes to him again and again and again. And eventually, the widow grants, uh, is, is granted the justice that she seeks, not because this judge is kind or godly, but he grants her justice because she was persistent in her asking. She persisted. And this is the story that Jesus chooses to teach his disciples about the power and the necessity of prayer in our lives. Now, you don't want to misinterpret this parable. Jesus was not saying that God is like the unjust judge. Jesus was not trying to tell us that God is reluctant and he's only going to answer our prayers if we drive him crazy. That is not the interpretation of this parable. If that's what you're getting from this, you're actually misinterpreting. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, even in the case of an unjust judge, justice was still delivered. Why? Because of passion and persistence. So how much more? Will God, our Father, who is just, who is kind, who is loving, who is good, how much more will he respond to the passion and the persistence of his own children when they would seek his face in prayer? That's the point of this parable. And Jesus asked this rhetorical question in verse number seven. He said, even he, even the unjust judge rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think that God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out day and night? Will he keep putting them off? The answer to the question is no, of course he won't. God is a good God who loves to answer your prayer. Romans chapter 8 says he even helps us in our weakness when we don't know what to pray. That God is for us, not against us. God, your Father, actually loves to answer prayer. And Jesus is making this point. Even this woman managed to render a favorable outcome from a judge who didn't even care. How much more is God going to bring a favorable outcome to you when you would seek his face? Is that not a wonderful truth? That is a wonderful truth, but the text doesn't end there in verse 7. In verse 8, Jesus ends his thoughts around this whole area with a but. (laughs) But. It's a little tiny three-letter word that has the capacity to change a lot of things. (laughs) You know, single guys... You're probably in a whole lot of trouble when she says something to you like, you're a really great guy, but (laughs) I really like you, but I'm sorry, but (laughs) yeah, (laughs) that's probably not a good sign. You probably need to just heal from that and and move on. (laughs) I don't want to cause pain in the room today. (laughs) 
But you know when someone gives you a but, there's a little bit more to the story, don't you? You know when someone says but, there's going to be a change coming. And Jesus tells this parable. He teaches a disciple on, on prayer. He said this woman got what she wanted from the unjust judge. So how much more when you come with persistence will God answer your needs? But then he says but. Everyone say but. But verse 8, let's read it together. But... When the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? Or another version says, but when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? In other words, will he find anyone who actually believes in the power of prayer? Will he find anyone that's actually coming to him with passion and persistence? But when the Son of Man returns, will he actually find someone who's continually seeking his face? This is an interesting question. What's interesting about the parable is the woman intuitively knew that the unjust judge was the one. He was the one that could bring about the breakthrough that she needed. She had faith in the unjust judge that he could do the thing she needed him to do. She wasn't persistent with the banker. She wasn't persistent with the doctor. She wasn't persistent with the psychologist. She was persistent with this judge because she had faith in his authority. So Jesus is here saying, when I come, will I find anyone who has faith in my authority? Will I find anyone who's seeking and praying and not relenting because they believe I have the ability to move in their situation. Through this teaching, Jesus is absolutely establishing for disciples, for us, that heaven is not a reluctant party. That the Father is willing, he is ready, he is able to hear and to answer our prayer. The bigger question is, is anyone praying? Is anyone seeking? When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? So we have to ask ourselves, is there faith on the earth in this room? You know, where you're sitting and maybe in your lounge room today, is there faith on the earth right where you are? We've got to ask ourselves, as Luke so eloquently summarized it, are we a people who are always praying and never giving up? Or perhaps the truth is a little bit more like we're a people who are occasionally praying and often giving up. I don't know if that's true for you, but it's certainly true for me. I don't always see in myself and in my own life the kind of passion and persistence in prayer that this woman exhibited before that unjust judge. And I don't think I'm the only one. I don't think I'm the only one. Could it be as disciples we have a prayer problem? If the goal is to always pray and never give up, and if we find within ourselves that we often fall short of that standard, could it be that we have a prayer problem? I'm just putting it out there. You know, there's this organization that runs prayer seminars all over America. And part of their prayer seminars, they routinely do a confidential questionnaire. And what they found through these surveys and questionnaires, they found that 85% of the Christians that they surveyed admitted to not having much of a prayer life. 
And I feel like if that's the situation in America, it's probably not that much different here in Australia. And who knows that if that's correct, if that's right, if 85% of us don't have much of a prayer life, I want to tell you that's a prayer problem. That is a prayer problem in the church. So if you're taking notes today, I've entitled this sermon, Becoming a People of Prayer. Because I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a part of a bunch of prayerless Christians. Because what even is that? (laughs) I'm not even sure what that is. Is that just tradition? Is that just religion? I don't want to be a part of a bunch of prayerless Christians. At the end of the day, a prayerless people is a powerless people. It was John Wesley who said this. He's quoted, God does nothing except in response to believing prayer. Just Selah. I know it's not scripture, but Selah anyhow. God does nothing except in response to believing prayer. There's no way we're going to see God do more, see God move more. There's no way he's going to move more in our families and in our world and in our marriages and with our unsafe friends and family members and our cities and our communities unless we grow and take steps to becoming a powerful people of prayer. Amen? If we turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, we discover very quickly that we're not the only disciples to have ever had a prayer problem. Praise be to God. <laughs> the, the 12 disciples in Matthew 26, they absolutely had a prayer problem. In the context of this um, passage of Scripture, Jesus is just about to go to the cross. So the days of his incarnation are nearly over. The high priests and the elders have all conspired together to arrest Jesus and to kill him. And Judas, one of his own, had actually already struck a deal to hand Jesus over to his betrayers. And Jesus, I think, in his humanity was really feeling the weight of this moment here in Matthew chapter 26. And and it's in this moment that Jesus starts to actually speak prophetically over his disciples and he tells them some things and he said on account of me you're all going to fall away they're going to strike the shepherd he was referring to himself they're going to strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter he was talking to to them and all the disciples piped up in that moment and answered Jesus and they say no Lord no Far be it from us, Lord. Even if all others fall away, Lord, we will never fall away. And this is when Peter had his very public moment of of denying and disowning Jesus three times. Remember the rooster crowed? That sort of thing. Making the Bible come alive for you. (laughs) The rooster crows. But but Peter gets a really bad rap here. But if you read the text closely, it wasn't just Peter that failed. The text tells us that they all forsook Jesus and they all fled. And it was in this context, in this dark and heavy atmosphere, that Jesus calls the disciples not to a time of strategy, not to a time of hustling and working hard or conversations or any of those things. He calls them to the place of prayer. He calls his disciples to the place of prayer. And we're going to pick it up in verse 36 of Matthew 26. And we're going to read through to verse 46. So that should be easy to remember. <laughs> 26, 36, 46. Whew. <laughs> Starting at verse 36. <laughs> then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. 
He took Peter and he took the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me yet, not as I will, but as you will. And then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said, couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and he went away once more and he prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So that's the moment of prayer that he, he called them to. And there's actually so much in his text that we can learn about what it takes to become a people of prayer. And the first thing I want you to see out of this text is that the very thing that Jesus taught his disciples in the parable of Luke chapter 18, he now models to them in Matthew 26. So here we see how in in Luke 18, as we read earlier, we saw that Jesus told them to come with passion and persistence, to pray and never give up. And here in front of the disciples, he puts into practice the very thing that he had instructed them to do. And I love how we don't just have a Jesus who just tells us how to do something, but he actually shows us how to do it. He actually modeled for it in his humility. He took his flesh that was bucking against the will of the Father and he brings it to the place of prayer. He comes to his Father in Gethsemane with passion and persistence and he doesn't just come once. He doesn't just come twice, but he comes three times and every time the scripture records that he prayed the same thing. And as a side, I just want to say to you, don't ever let anyone tell you not to use repetition in the place of prayer. The book of Matthew chapter 6 doesn't warn us about repetition. It warns us about vain repetitions. There's a big difference. The book of Matthew chapter 6 tells us, watch out for prayer that is all words and no heart. Watch out for prayer that is words for words sake. Watch out for prayer that is just multiplied words for the sake of being heard by men but has no heart connection. That's the type of prayer we're supposed to flee from, get away from. But repetition that comes from your heart, repetition that comes from a heart cry, a place that just cannot be silent, that kind of prayer is not only welcomed by God, it is encouraged. It's encouraged. It's the type of prayer that the, it's the type of attitude that that widow brought before the unjust judge. It's the sort of sentiment that Paul was getting at, at first, in 1 Thessalonians when he said, pray without ceasing. And it's exactly, that repetition is exactly what Jesus did here in the garden of Gethsemane. His heart cried out before his father and he repeated himself over and over until it was done. Over and over until he felt within himself that something had transacted. 
He felt within himself that that stubborn will of his flesh had actually yielded and surrendered to the will of his father. I get the impression he would have prayed 20 times if that's what it took. The problem was how, wasn't how many times did he repeat. The problem was, did he pray until it was done? Was it done? Was it done? So Jesus fervently prays in this place called Gethsemane, but the disciples did not. And Jesus has directly asked them to be prayerful and watchful, but they slept. They slept three times, he asked them, and three times they slept. But I'm not judging, because truth is, if I was there that night, I think I would have slept too. (laughs) Let's take an honest survey right now. (laughs) Have you ever gone to the place of prayer and fallen asleep? Oh, there we go. (laughs) We are in some good company today. We are sleepy disciples sometimes. (laughs) I I read over the text again to inquire of the text, what was the nature of their prayer problem? Like, why did they not pray? Why did they fail in this assignment to pray because who knows, before you can bring a solution to any problem, you've got to understand the nature of the problem. And, and so when I looked at the text to understand their prayer problem, some attributes became really apparent to me. And I believe the same attributes that we see in those disciples in the garden that night, those same attributes also contribute to us and our prayer problem. So with the time we got left, I want to share three things that we need to address if, we ca- if we're to become a people of prayer. And the very first thing is we need to become more aware of our needs. To God. We need to become deeply aware, every day aware of our need of God. So Jesus is here in Gethsemane, living, knowing, deeply aware how much he needed the Father. We, we read in the scriptures about him that he didn't do anything, he didn't say anything without having seen it or heard it from his father. And I think this was especially true here in this Gethsemane moment. And, And when Luke's gospel records the Gethsemane moment for us, we actually read there that as Jesus tarried in prayer, that an angel of the Lord came to strengthen him. That's how Luke records it. In other words, in this place of prayer, the supernatural was released. And in this place of prayer, there was actually a divine impartation. And the father imparted something to the son that he needed to overcome the challenge that was coming, the challenge of the cross that was coming. The father imparted something to the son that helped him overcome the wrestle of his own will and his own human nature. Jesus understood his need. The disciples, however, thought they could do it in their own strength. See, see, Jesus had prophesied and predicted to the disciples, on account of me, you're going to fall away. He said, watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. Watch and pray that you may not fall. But they were like, ah, she'll be right. They were Aussie disciples. She'll be right, mate. (laughs) And they slept. 
They just didn't realize their great need of God. They didn't understand. But how often do we live our lives like that? Either consciously or subconsciously, through our actions, through our words, through our behaviors, we're saying, she'll be right, mate. She'll be right. God, I'll be strong enough. I'll be able to overcome that temptation. I'll just rely on my own ability to get through. My hustle will get me through. My hard work will get me through. My budgets will keep me safe. My calendar has got me sorted, etc., etc., and so on. We say, I've got this, but do we really got this? <laughs> I'll be right, God, but are we really going to be all right? Do we know how much we need him? Can you imagine a different scenario in Gethsemane that night? Imagine if the disciples had have actually manned up and stayed awake and stayed at their post and actually watched and actually prayed. Maybe they too could have overcome temptation. Maybe they too would have received a divine impartation and the strength that they needed. Peter denied Jesus three times, but maybe he actually didn't have to if he had stood up and watched and prayed. We're not designed to do our life in our own strength. The scriptures tell us so clearly, apart from him, we can do nothing. We need God. Even in our Western comfort, we get lulled into this sense that we're all right without God. We can just have a little bit of God on the side. We're fooled. If we think that we're in a place of deception, we need God. Our families need God. Our marriages need God. The next generation needs God. Your workplace needs God. Lost people need, we need him. We need him. We need him and the place that we find him, his strength, his answers, his impartations is in the place of prayer. Amen? Amen. My second point is we need to become aware of the urgency of the hour. If we want to become a people of prayer, we need to become aware of the urgency of the hour. What becomes so apparent when you read the text is the disciples really didn't understand the urgency of the hour. They didn't really get it. Jesus knew. Jesus knew the gravity. He knew the weight. He knew what was coming. And he knew the nature and the intensity of the spiritual battle that was raging around him. He knew. And because he knew, he was fervent in prayer. It was not a time to muck around. But the disciples did not understand the urgency of the hour. So they were sleepy and casual in their approach to prayer. Is it possible for us to... That right now, there's an intense spiritual battle raging around us. Is it possible for us too that right now, the attack on Christianity and the attack on our values and the attack on our children and the influences that want to come through social media and all those sorts of things, is it possible that that too is a sustained strategic spiritual attack? Like, I don't want to be alarmist, Ken said last week, I don't want to be alarmist. Like, we don't want to be alarmist, but we don't want to be ignorant. We do not want to be ignorant. So like, maybe we too don't quite understand the urgency of the hour. And because we don't, we're a bit sleepy and a bit casual. A bit mucking around. <laughs> but I wonder if we did have a greater realization if the spiritual realm could be peeled back for us for just a minute, if we could see what was swirling around us, would it produce a new degree of fervent prayer within us? Would we rise up with passion and persistence and actually say, not on our watch? 
not on our watch. We will pray for breakthrough. We will pray to see it done, not on our watch. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 55 says this. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. And call upon the Lord while he is near. I think it's very interesting language because the language kind of infers that there's a window of opportunity. It might be open now, but it might not be open later. You understand? And that's the thing about opportunities. They do not last forever. Jesus gave them an opportunity. He called them to prayer in Gethsemane. There was a window of opportunity to seek the face of the Lord, and they did not. And then the window of opportunity closed, and temptation came, and they were not victorious. They forsook Jesus, and they fled. And my point is simply this. We can't just assume and presume that the grace and the favor of the Lord will always be there. We can't just live casually and live sleepy without the fear of the Lord in our life. We can't presume and and assume that he's always going to give us this window of opportunity, give us this chance for the outpouring and be all sleepy and casual until we decide that we're ready. Let's not be those people. The time to seek the Lord is now. There's a window of opportunity right now. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Let's understand the urgency of the hour. And the last thing, if we're going to become a people of prayer, we need to learn to deal with the obstacle of the flesh. Oh, it's a light little word today, isn't it? (laughs) Do you still like me? Are we still friends? (laughs) I told you we were about discipleship. If you're not happy with this, I don't know how we're reading the Gospels because Jesus, this is the content of his heart. This is the content of his messaging. This is how he trained his guys. And I'm here for it, you know. Learn to deal with the obstacle of the flesh. Jesus was so helpful here in Matthew 26. He actually diagnosed part of their prayer problem for them. He actually brings a, a diagnostic. He said to these sleepy disciples, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. In other words, he's telling them, hey, you don't have a spirit problem. You do not have a good intention problem. The problem is a flesh problem. It's a flesh problem. And can't we just relate to that? We're good people. We have good intentions. We we don't have a spirit problem. We have a, a flesh problem. If I were to ask any one of us here, do we want to become a people of greater prayer? It's like unanimous yes, I reckon. I think we'd have a just about unanimous yes. So we say, okay, let's pray. Next minute, we're tired, we're yawning, we're sleeping, we're eating, we're drinking, we're scrolling, we're texting, we're working, we're doing everything except actually praying. And that's just me. That's just me. You know, maybe you, maybe you can understand as well. You know, in principle, we want to pray. We do, we want to pray, but we've just not learned to overcome the obstacle of the flesh so that we can regularly, routinely, consistently come to the place of prayer. And so we're going to help. We're going to go in holding hands. We're going to go in together for the next 21 days corporately in the lead up to conference. We're calling for a corporate 21 days of prayer and fasting. You know, fasting is prayer's greatest partner. As a spiritual discipline, it's actually a tool from God to us to help us overcome the obstacle of our flesh. 
Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he lays out three spiritual disciplines that should actually be present in the life of every believer. They are giving, praying, and fasting. They're all there. Read the Sermon on the Mount. They're all there. All three expected in the life of believers. Giving and prayer we're more familiar with. Giving, uh, we did that so beautifully last week as a church family. Prayer, we hear a lot about, but fasting perhaps doesn't get as much airtime. But I think fasting more than any other spiritual discipline actually helps us to overcome the obstacle of the flesh. Because as you fast, you very intentionally dethrone the the appetite of the flesh so you can hone your appetite for the Lord. As you fast, you actually silence the voice of the flesh. It loses its power in your life so that you can amplify the voice of God's Spirit. You understand, fasting is a tool. It's a discipline in your head. We don't fast for spiritual brownie points. In fact, fasting is not about getting Jesus' attention. You already have Jesus' attention. Fasting is about Jesus getting more of our attention. It's about him getting more of us. You know, and I don't have time to deep dive it now. My time is nearly up. But this week in Connects, Ken and I actually spend more time going into the mechanics of fasting, what it is and how we do it and how you can participate. So make sure you get yourself into Connect this week. But there's 21 days of prayer and fasting. (laughs) It's a place of prayer, Lord. (laughs) It's a very practical step that we're taking together as a church. And obviously not everyone's going to fast for the full 21 days, but I would encourage everyone to pray and seek the Lord and ask Him how He's asking you to personally participate. We want to grow as a people of prayer, right? You might not be successful in overcoming the obstacle of the flesh on your own, but I bet you could do it in community. I bet you can do it in community. If you would just get accountable, if you would just get together with a prayer partner, I bet you can overcome together. You, you might not be successful at getting up at 6 a.m. to pray on your own, but you could drive to church at that time and you could stand together with your brothers and sisters and we can f- seek the face of the Lord together, amen? You know, it's not just for kicks. It's not just for fun. That's not why we're calling this, but we're serious about Nation's Church becoming and being a people, a powerful prayer. Amen. We want to be a church who knows just how much we need God and a church who responds to the urgency of the hour. And as we come and seek him in the place of prayer, that we're going to see him move. And we're going to see him do more. And we're not going to be the lid on what the Lord can do. We're not going to be the blockage to his presence, to his power, to his spirit. Thanks for listening to the Nations Church podcast. For more info, please visit nationschurch.com.